Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. No matter how high your canopy grows, no matter how far your twigs reach, your roots will always remain buried under the same soil. This program features the work of 2021 writer Jose Luis Montero. In the first half, you'll hear his conversation with curator E.J. Coe. Welcome. I'm excited to get the chance to learn more about you and your work. Can you tell us about your Jack Straw project? Well, I am working on a project that is based on a series of personal essays, short capsules that have to do with my story in terms of me coming here into the United States. And the idea in many ways is to, you know, tell a different story of migration, uh, not the typical story you hear about a Mexican person crossing the border. Uh, and basically, I want to dispel some misconceptions in terms of uh, the whole immigration process, how even if you come here uh, legally, you know, there's still, there's so many hurdles, there's so many things you have to go through, so many things you have to leave behind, so many things you have to experience sometimes hard ones that uh, it's not as rosy as you would think. I'd love to know sort of what you can tell us about the discourse around quote-unquote illegal immigration from Latin America and what are the consequences of what immigrants have to endure to legalize their status? Well, when I came here to the United States, it was not uh, in an illegal way. I was very, very lucky that I was able to come here with a job and that that job was able to sponsor me to start my immigration status. So I did not really go through the perils of you know, having to, to pay a coyote to smuggle me through the border or having to walk through the desert and, and endure so many horrible things that... I have known people to have endure, and it's terrible what so many people have to go through in order to make it here because they just want to come to work. So there's many things you have to go through to be able to, you know, achieve the American dream. Can you talk about what brought you to you wanting to write and the sort of the things that you're responding to in your work? I think that more than the actual nooks and crannies of an immigration process, to me it's more about pondering about being away, you know, uh, leaving, leaving my country, leaving my family, and what you have to do in order to, to get to the place where you believe you belong to. So to me, the, the kind of story I want to talk about is not necessarily to detail exactly, you know, all the forms that I have to to get my green card or my citizenship, but rather what drove me to come here and what I had to leave behind 
and kind of like ask myself in a very rhetorical way, is it worth it? I grew up in a home where we didn't speak English. We didn't speak English at home, and it it's interesting to grow up and become a writer who writes in English and who speaks in English. And if anything, it made me write in other languages and bring them into my works in English. And I and I wonder how that was like for you. I mean, I know you write in both English and Spanish. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting thing. We didn't really have that many books in the house, and my parents were not they were not able to buy many books. And even if they could, we, we couldn't buy them because they just didn't have them in, in our town. So I grew up around very few books. However, I always wanted to read stuff, right? I didn't have much, but whenever I got my hands on something, um, and sometimes I got myself in trouble because I, I would get my hands on things that I shouldn't have. <laughs> um, but I, I was just devoured. And um, interestingly enough, then I started going to school and becoming more, uh, going more into like science and engineering, that kind of stuff, right? But but always, there was always this love for the written world, the, the spoken word, the, the ability to communicate and tell stories. And uh, I didn't really start writing, uh, writing like for real till like around maybe 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And I had to start doing it in English because I was already living here. I really wanted to do it in Spanish, but I couldn't because I couldn't take any classes from here. And so I started taking classes locally and going to conferences and stuff like that. And eventually it came to the point where I was so, so passionate about it. And the other thing I have to say is, in between that time, I did many other things related to storytelling. Like, again, in high school, I was in the radio station. When I came here, I got involved in uh, Weekly World, uh, Northwest Film Forum, and I took, like, uh, screenwriting classes and, and, and camera classes. I also did photography as well. And somehow, through a progress of elimination, you know, like, I started wanting to make movies when I came here, and, but I just did not have the time to do it. And so I started simplifying to the point where, like, the easiest way to tell a story was through writing. I just needed pen and paper. That's it. And so 10 years ago, I started taking classes and on my craft. And uh, three years ago, I decided that I had to do something more. I wanted to get my MFA, but I really wanted to do it in Spanish. So I ended up quitting my job, going to Spain, and taking a couple of years off to, to just do it. And so... That's how I came about to write both in English and Spanish. In the past 10 years of your writing, I'd love to hear about what are the writing lessons that have stayed with you all these years, the ones that really stick to your bones? I think of writing as a three-legged stool, right? For me, writing, for me, good writing has to do with narrative techniques, you know, number one. Number two would be the narrative voice, your voice when you're writing the piece. And to me, the last leg of that three-leg stool would be the emotional connection that you, as a writer, establish with your reader. 
so I think that uh, for a masterpiece, you know, you have to have those three legs and they have to be very solid so that the the stool actually stays in place. Because if you have one leg that, that is bigger than the others, then it's going to start moving around, shaking, and, and, and perhaps you won't be able to sit on it, right? Now we'll hear a selection from José Luis's live reading. I was born in the port of Mazatlán, inside room 203 of the Divina Providencia Hospital, located four blocks away from the beach, three from the cathedral, two from my family's ancestral home, where my parents buried my umbilical cord, and only one street away from the house where I plan to spend my golden years. If there's anything I've learned during four long decades of spreading my branches across the vastness of this world, is that no matter how high your canopy grows, no matter how far your twigs reach, your roots will always remain buried under the same soil. Names are crucial to our identity. They're imbued with meaning and history. They're part of our legacy. My name is Jose Luis, like my father, but family and friends have always called me Pepe, and not because of that smug cartoon character, Pepe Le Pew. The nickname actually comes directly from the Bible. The Catholic Church, concerned about the possibility of Joseph being confused for the biological father of Jesus, added a footnote whenever his name was mentioned in the scriptures to ensure readers knew he was only Jesus' putative father. The moniker Padre Putativo was too long to reproduce in paper, so it was abbreviated as P-P, which in Spanish is pronounced P-P, and that's how all Jose's got their nickname. In the Spanish-speaking world, everyone has two official last names, the fathers, then the mothers, in that order. When I came to the United States, my mother's last name was suppressed from all official documents. This was unsettling for her. With a mouse click, the legacy of her family was wiped away, and as much as I regretted it, I acquiesced to the local custom. At the same time, people at work started calling me Jose. The lack of the accent I actually didn't mind. What really bothered me was the missing Luis. In Spanish, any name that starts with Maria or Jose becomes a compound first name that is pronounced as a single word, emphasizing the accent on the second name. Names like Jose Luis or Maria Elena are pronounced Jose Luis and Maria Elena in the same manner that Marianne and Billy Joe are pronounced as a single word. It felt strange to be called Jose at first, but I was a guest in this country and I didn't feel right to lecture people on the intricacies of Spanish names, so I just got used to it. Truth was, I never liked the name Jose on its own. Jose Luis was fine, but I always harbored the wish that my parents had named me Luis, after my grandfather. He passed away when my dad was a teenager, and I'm told that I take after him in so many ways. Both of us came to the United States at a very young age, learned English, and picked up the American customs of the time. Despite growing up under the influence of rural surroundings, both of us were city rats to the core and enjoyed the modern world pleasures. Also, neither of us could stand to sport our fingernails short. A few months ago, 
researching my family tree online, I came across my grandfather's baptism certificate and uncovered a secret. He was actually baptized as José Luis, and his grandfather's name was Luis as well. But looking at census records, I also learned that he signed his name as Luis O. Montero, the letter O in honor of his mother's last name, Osuna. No one in the family has ever been able to explain convincingly why he did any of this. Perhaps he had a penchant for rewriting his own story, for crafting his own narrative. Perhaps, deep inside, he was also a storyteller, just like me. Apparently, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree, indeed. Every Sunday, my father would take us for a ride to one of the nearby rural towns. He called this Granchal. We would pick a nice but inexpensive restaurant to have lunch, then spend the afternoons exploring the dirt roads that connected the ranchitos dotting the region. Often, we would stop at small farms to buy seasonal fruits, like mangoes, guamuchiles, or Mexican plums. Sometimes we'd stumble upon a small creamery and bought queso fresco or queso oreado. If we were lucky, we'd find a rural bakery and eat some pan de rancho, the most delicious bread in the world, made with farm eggs, butter and milk, organicos before the term was even coined. We would drive back late in the afternoon just in time for twilight. The view from atop the high bridge that crossed into the city was always a majestic sight. The sky flared with an intensity I had yet to see anywhere else. The yellows gave way to the reds, then the pinks, and then the purples over a carpet of clouds that stretched all the way to the horizon. As we crossed the bridge and admired the sunset, my father would start singing Que me importa, an old Cuban bolero from the 1940s, made popular by Mario Fernández Porta. Los ojos del sol se han cerrado y con ellos se ha ido la luz. De violeta se viste la tarde porque pronto la noche vendrá. Then, invariably, I would start singing the chorus. Que me importa que la lluvia caiga despiadadamente. Que me importa que el sol y la luna no quieran salir. At the end, we would all sing in unison as we drove to the streets and made our way home. Si mi alma será solo tuya por toda la vida, que me importa que todo se acabe si me quedas tú. We would arrive just in time for the last hour of Siempre en Domingo, a weekly variety show that all of Mexico watched together, because back then, we really had only one TV channel, and in our small town, there was nothing else to do on a Sunday evening. In the dark, under the scintillating flicker of our old cathode ray tube television, showing all those Mexican startlets, we never realized that those moments together were truly magical, irreplaceable, that once I grew up, once I left my hometown in my country of birth, 
we would never be able to replicate that tenderness, that sense of togetherness that made us feel like a family. Just like that old bolero song, we didn't realize that once the aurora had gone and everything had ended, our souls still belonged together, even if there were no luminaries left to light our way to eternity. Plants are wise and more attuned to nature than we could ever be. If there's one thing I learned from them, it's that you may abandon the soil of your motherland, but your motherland never abandons you. When I was little, there was no nurseries or commercial seeds available in our hometown. Instead, people acquired plants by trading plant cottons, poditos we called them. My parents were experts at this. Wherever we went, mom searched for interesting plants and negotiated the exchange while dad nursed the poditos and planted them in our garden. Mom preferred flowers, but dad believed plants had to bear fruit to justify the effort. For him, Flowers were beautiful, but beauty never fed anyone. Our house had a big yard with an assortment of tropical fruit trees. There were soursops, Mexican plums, avocados, chicos apotes, nanches, liches, coconuts, mangoes, and multiple guava trees. Guavas were always my favorite, and despite not being his, that planted every single variety he found. Wild guavas, pineapple guavas, strawberry guavas, giant guavas, even pear-looking guavas. Our relatives joked that the only area devoid of plants was a perimeter wall. Luckily for mom, grapes did not grow in our region and my parents didn't know of any other climbing plants that bear fruit. So, each time she laid her eyes on an enredadera with beautiful flowers, she could negotiate to get a podito and ask my dad to plant it there. She was particularly proud of her llamarada, a bindweed that produced a cascade of small orange blooms that looked like the botanical equivalent of a blaze, and her copa de oro with its big yellow trumpet-shaped flowers. When an out-of-town relative gifted my dad with a podito of passion fruit enredadera from Brazil, he became really excited about the possibility of harvesting fruta de la pasión, instead of settling for a bunch of copas de oro. As he nursed the podito, he envisioned the exotic jams and the tropical marmalades, but as soon as the passion fruit was planted in the dirt, the foliage wilted and the vine died. Abuelita, an even better gardener than my dad, declared that the passion fruit remembered the soil it came from and withered in sorrow. Even plants have motherlands, and no matter how far away a plant may travel, foliage still remembers. Thank you very much. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production produced by Alyssa Keen and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by Andrew Weathers, produced in part through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2021 curator of this program is E.J. Ko, and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keen. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown 
and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, Humanities Washington, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Rainier Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Michael Folks and Cecilia Ayers for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.